as we turn our attention to 1 Timothy 2. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, that's on page 839, 1 Timothy 2. When I was in my mid-twenties teaching English in Hungary, I had the privilege of traveling to Warsaw, Poland for a gathering of Christian college students from all over Europe. It was uh, put on by IFES, the international organization of which InterVarsity Christian Fellowship here in the States is a part. And uh, the Bible expositor at that conference was John Stott. Some of you know him well. He's an internationally regarded Christian leader and Bible teacher from England. He's written books and commentaries, etc. And all of the participants at this conference were invited to sign up for a slot to spend a few minutes with John Stott. And I jumped at the opportunity because not only was he one of my heroes, but I badly needed some wise advice. And I thought, who better to get some from? You see, the church I had attended for a few years had just made the decision to allow women to be elders. And as far as I could tell, this wasn't biblical, and so I was wondering if I should leave the church. And so I asked John Stott about this, and in his pastoral, thoughtful way, he said, well, there are some issues in Christianity which are core and central to our faith and are worth staking everything on. And there are other issues which good and faithful Bible-believing Christians disagree about. And women's roles in ministry is certainly in that latter category, don't you think? And so I encourage you, he said, to stick with your church. And that made sense to me, and so I did. Well, we're in 1 Timothy 2 today, and this chapter brings us face-to-face with this very issue, as we've already been grappling with it this morning. We looked at 1 Timothy 1 last week, and remember we saw that central to the Apostle Paul's message to Timothy in this letter is that sound doctrine and teaching, which keeps the core message of the gospel at the center, will make a church healthy, while teaching which gets distracted by religious speculation and and trivia quickly becomes divisive and toxic to a church community. And so I find it ironic that several of the practical topics that Paul addresses in the rest of 1 Timothy have been the grounds for numerous conflicts and church splits. Today's topic is one of those. Next week's topic on church organization and leadership is another. Now, I realize that this is a contentious topic. We have both men and women at CBC who have strong feelings on both sides of this issue, Uh, Last year, the views represented on our elders board were just about split right down the middle, I think. And because this is such an important topic to so many, I didn't want to stand up here and open the Bible to talk about this passage without really knowing what I was talking about. So I have spent almost every free evening over the last three or four weeks studying all sides of this topic and praying about this morning. And just to give you an idea, here are just some of the books that I have referred to, as well as a number of uh, great things that are on the internet, journal articles, etc. Where am I going to put these? They're there for my reference if I get stuck. And after spending all that time studying this, I can tell you firsthand that John Stott is right. 
that faithful Bible-believing Christians disagree about this topic passionately. And I think a lot of the passion comes from the fact that this isn't just an issue we can agree to disagree about. I mean, there are other secondary issues like whether Jesus will come back uh, before or after the tribulation where you can have your view and I can have mine and we can share them with each other. And then at the end of the day, we can just throw up our hands and say, well, when he comes back, we'll find out who's right. But it's not that easy with women's role in ministry because in this issue, we have to choose. Either we let women be elders in our church or we don't. Either we let them preach or we don't. And thus far as a church, we've chosen not to. And we have people in this church who who strongly um, defend this. And we have others who just as strongly disagree with it. And we have women in this church, as as Pat very honestly shared from her heart this morning, for whom this is all very personal. Some because the teaching and practice of their churches growing up has caused them to feel less and second best in God's eyes. And others because they personally sense that, that God has created and called them and given them gifts to use teaching and leading God's people, but their options to do so, and especially to make a living at it, are very limited. And so for all these reasons, we have to approach this topic with great care. To help us do that, I'd like to make three requests of all of us this morning, whatever side of this issue we're on. First, will you trust God's word to be your final authority on this issue. I realize we all come to this issue with opinions based on our our upbringing, what our parents taught us or modeled for us, or just based on what we're comfortable with personally, based on our experiences, good or bad, with the opposite sex, or based on our reaction, positive or negative, to the strong feminism of recent decades and the, the strong societal push to empower women to reach full equality. We come with all these opinions and perspectives, but I'd like to ask us all, will you hold that a little more loosely and open your mind and heart and let the Bible be your final authority on this issue? Will you trust that the God whom we believe created us knows best who we are as male and female and how we can best work and get along together? Second, I'd like to ask you, will you allow yourself to learn something new? about this topic. Maybe you've studied what the Bible says on this in the past. Maybe you've been taught a certain way by faithful Bible teachers who you loved and trusted and respected. But will you admit to yourself that nevertheless, maybe you don't know everything? Maybe there's something new you can learn. Also, will you admit to yourself that we all come to the Bible with biases which influence the way we understand and interpret it? And we tend to gravitate toward authors and teachers who who agree with us, right? (laughs) Rather than seeking out opposing perspectives, which are actually the ones which might enable us to uh, see, as they point out, something which maybe we didn't see or think about before. In the interest of full disclosure, I'll tell you what my biases are. I was raised by a mother who was very traditional on this topic, and she influenced my view of women deeply. 
Then in college, I was influenced more than I'd like to admit by the strong, liberal, politically correct agenda which predominated there. But I, I was also part of a Christian fellowship where we studied and debated this issue together and we concluded that women should not teach or lead men. Yet both in college and since then, I've had the experience of working with ministry teams with bright, faithful, humble, and gifted women on those teams, and we were much better teams because those women were there. Several such women along the way also respectfully and gently nudged me to reconsider my own views and presented me with some good arguments I hadn't considered before. Then in seminary, I studied the New Testament under Gordon Fee, who has taught me more than anyone else about how to understand and interpret the New Testament. And Fee also happens to be one of the leading voices for allowing women to teach and lead in churches. And I know that, although that wasn't something he, he drummed into us in the classroom by any means. But I, I was aware of that. Yet I could never see how our text this morning, 1 Timothy 2, allowed that. So I have all these competing biases when I open my Bible to see what God says. And you have your biases too. And the key isn't to erase our biases, but, but just to be aware that we have them as we come to Scripture and to be humble and open before God to learn something new. Third and finally, I'd like to ask you to look at the person next to you out of the corner of your eye, or maybe they're across the aisle, the person who disagrees with you, and to withhold judgment. If you're liberal on this issue, you may be tempted to think, well, those conservatives, they're just old-fashioned. They're stuck in the 1950s. And if you're conservative, you may be tempted to think, well, those liberals, they're just feminists. They've, they've bought into all this politically correct stuff which is destroying our country, right? We have all those ideas which roll around in our heads. But are you willing to withhold judgment and to allow that maybe the other person has some good biblical reasons for what they believe? Or, or just even some deep feelings which need to be understood and respected whether or not we agree with them or not. This is a deep issue. It's a, it's a tough issue. It's a battle out there in our culture. And, and so we, as Jesus' people, need to lead the way in handling it with consideration and care and gentleness toward one another. That's the peace Paul talks about. Amen? And finally, for those of us who are who uh, are in agreement, I said those of us, I, I'm going to stay neutral in this. For those who are in agreement with our church's current practice on this issue, let's realize that there are others who aren't, and some of them are making significant personal sacrifices to be here in fellowship and unity with us. All right, well, that by way of extended introduction. And so before we dive into the text itself, why don't we get up and greet one another, <laughs> stretch our legs for a minute. All right, if you want to find your seats and your Bibles. Let's turn to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy now. I'm going to focus mostly on the last few verses because let's be honest, that's what we're all thinking about when we read this chapter. And I did talk about a good part of the first chapter last week, so or the second, the first half of the second chapter last week. 
Let me say right off that this text is a very hard one to understand for at least three reasons. First, take verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. That's a hard verse to translate. This is the new NIV here. But just to see what I mean, go and read a handful of other translations and notice some of the footnotes that some of them have, and you'll see that they can't agree. And if I were to give equal weight to all the possibilities of what this Greek sentence could mean, which is translated into English here, it it might, or I might translate it, I do not permit or am not permitting a woman or a wife to teach or assume or exercise or have or usurp authority or to teach in a domineering or dominating way over a man or a husband. Almost every word in this sentence is debated. That's partly why I spent a month studying this. And along the way, I probably changed my own mind three or four times. You read one side and you say, oh, that sounds good, until you read the other side. And then you say, oh, that sounds good too. Uh, I don't know. A second reason that this is a hard passage to understand is because it's hard to figure out whether it applies directly to everyone at all times or whether it just applies to Timothy's situation there in Ephesus. Remember we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 3, that Paul is writing to Timothy for a special, specific reason to, to urge him to stay in Ephesus so that he can stop some false teachers who are um, wrecking the Ephesian church. We saw that these false teachers have persuaded some wealthy women to uh, host this teaching in their large homes and that these women are also spreading it from house church to house church. And so the question is, is that what Paul's addressing here? Or is he giving Timothy some general instructions here about what God's will is for all women at all times in all churches? And it's, it's hard to tell. The third reason this passage is hard to understand is because it and a few other passages seem to contradict the general attitude that the Bible has toward women. After all, Genesis 1 says that God created both male and female in his own image. Genesis 3 then says that that man came to rule over woman as a result of the fall and the curse when Adam and Eve sinned. And so men did rule over women predominantly in the Old Testament times. And in spiritual matters, men did most of the teaching and the leading. Although there were exceptions, God's spirit was working Moses' sister Miriam, for example, was a prophetess whose words about God made their way into Scripture, as did Hannah's and later Mary's. And women like Hannah and Manoah's wife, who was uh, Samson's mother, and Abigail had to straighten out their spiritually dense husbands along the way. And Deborah was a prophetess and a judge who ruled Israel for a time and led them into battle. And Huldah was a prophetess who spoke God's word to King Josiah. And then Jesus came and began to overturn the curse and the results of the fall. And uh, Jesus had female disciples, not among the twelve, but among the larger group of women who learned from him and followed him around as his disciples. And that was something which was radically progressive in Jesus' day. And the gospel writers make a point that at, at key points or at that key point at Jesus' time on earth, it was women who stood by him last at the cross and first at the tomb. 
And Jesus chose Mary Magdalene to be the first to witness and to proclaim to the men the good news, the gospel of the resurrection. And that was radical in that day. In Paul's letters, Paul mentions women like Priscilla and Euodia and Syntyche, who were his co-workers, who contended by Paul's side in the cause of the gospel. And that's the same language that Paul uses of men like Silas and Timothy and Apollos and others. Priscilla, of course, is famous in the book of Acts for teaching Apollos correct doctrine, along with her husband Aquila, but she's generally mentioned first, and that was highly unusual in that culture. And then in Romans 16, Paul also mentions Junia, who was outstanding among the apostles. Now, for years, old Bible translations made up the name Junius to make her a man simply because they assumed a woman couldn't possibly be an apostle. In Romans 16, also, Paul mentions Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Sencrea, and some translations call her a servant of that church, which is what deacon literally means, just as Paul and others are called servants. Women also served as prophets in the early churches, according to 1 Corinthians 11 and Acts 21. And this was no small thing, since Paul, when he mentions spiritual gifts, always lists prophet right after apostle, before he gets to teacher down further on the list. And Paul says in Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Before they had a New Testament, it was the apostles and prophets who had a word from God for the people, and women were prophets. And given the fact that the first century where all this was taking place was highly restrictive to women, the gospel was definitely elevating the role that women could play. Because as Paul puts it in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the question interpreters wrestle with is, just how far does this revolutionary work of the gospel go? Clearly, Paul worked hard in the early church to equalize the relationships between Jew and Gentile. And, and hundreds of years later, thanks to the influence of the gospel, slaves got their equality. But what about women? Are they next? Or do texts like 2 Timothy 2 suggest that the relationship between men and women is a bit more complicated than that? Well, you can see the challenge that we have in trying to understand today's text. On, on face value, it, what it says looks clear enough, but the more carefully you look into it, the less clear it gets. That's why my favorite title of all the articles I looked at in preparing for this morning was this one. It was written by a woman. Paul and women, telling women to shut up is more complicated than you might think. <laughs> Only a woman could get away with that article title. All right, well, let's try to make sense of this passage. And I'll give you my assumption as an interpreter. Since Paul has clearly stated at the beginning of his letter that he's writing to help Timothy deal with problems caused by the false teachers in this church, and those problems are all over this letter in 2 Timothy 2, I'm going to assume that these problems are somehow behind each matter that Paul addresses in his letter until he gives me reasons to assume otherwise. Fair enough? Whether you agree or not? Okay, chapter 2. We saw briefly last 
Sunday that the false teaching and the exclusivist attitudes and quarrels that it was causing in the church explain why Paul wants this church to pray for all people, verse 1, and to live quiet and peaceful lives, verse 2. And note that word quiet. We'll come back to that in a second. It also explains why Paul wants the men to pray together without anger or disputing, verse 8. And so now when Paul turns his attention to women in verse 9, can it explain that too? Can the the issue with the false teaching explain that? Well, let's see. Paul says that women are to dress modestly, not ostentatiously, not seductively. And scholars tell us that in Paul's day, first of all, only wealthy women could afford to dress like this with gold and pearls, with fancy hairdos. And when they did, of course, they would make common women feel second class who had no time or money to dress up like this. And second, scholars tell us that to dress this way was a sign that you were sexually available, which was very disrespectful if you had a husband, of course. So does this kind of dress have anything to do with the false teaching? Well, remember last week we saw that this teaching forbade people to marry. And it claimed that the resurrection had already taken place. And we know, of course, that Jesus had said that when we're resurrected, we'll be like angels, no longer marrying or being given in marriage. So not marrying and the resurrection already taking place. Those two things go together. So could it be that these false teachers were luring certain women away from their husbands and or their families, or maybe they're zeroing in on the younger widows, and they're saying it's more spiritual to be single to be unattached, to be free from the responsibilities of marriage and raising families and managing households. You're spiritual, resurrected women now. You're free. You're you're free, interestingly enough, to support and host these false teachers who we saw were greedy for money. And you're free to get dressed up to kill and to go out visiting other house churches, spreading this false teaching around. Remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 6. These false teachers worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are swayed with evil desires. And in 1 Timothy 5, 13, there are younger widows who get into the habit of being idle and going from house to house, talking nonsense, saying things they ought not to say. So Paul counters in verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Notice that word quietness. Some translate it silence. But if you go back to verse 2, Paul said there that he wanted God's people to live quiet lives. Same word. And starting in verse 8, Paul explained what these quiet lives looked like. The men are to stop arguing and disputing, and the women are to learn with quietness and submission. Also, it's worth noting that in Greek, verse 11 is the only true imperative in this whole chapter. Paul's strongest command to Timothy in this passage is to get the women to learn. Scholars have pointed out that in Paul's day, educating women was not a priority. Very few were educated, and and so many women being undereducated were prone to deception in that culture. Scholars also point out that All good students in that day were expected to learn in quietness and submission. 
So Paul isn't demeaning women here. No, far from it. He's pro-education for women. That was progressive in his day, but not the kind of education that the false teachers are offering, which is deceptive and doesn't lead to a peaceable and quiet life. No, Paul wants the Ephesian women to, to stop dressing up seductively and to stop spreading this false teaching around town, but to submit themselves as good and attentive students to the good, healthy instruction that Timothy and other genuine teachers of the church can provide. Paul reinforces this then in verse 12, and and now I'm going to translate this verse literally from the Greek, and I'll leave one word untranslated, which I'll come back to. But to teach, I do not permit a woman, nor to authentain a man, but to be in quietness. And there's that word quietness again, reinforcing Paul's main point. Now, interpreters endlessly debate this word authentane and what it means and and how it relates to teaching. Recent translations have tended to translate it as to have or exercise authority. But the problem is that's not the normal word for authority. Exousia is the normal word for authority. Authentane is, is a very rare word. In fact, it doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. And it only occurs three times in all of the ancient literature that we know about within a couple hundred years of the time Paul is writing. So we don't have a lot to go on. What we can tell is that it tends to be a very strong word and that it means not so much to have authority, but to use or exercise authority. It's an active word. Thus, the King James translation, usurp authority. Others suggest domineer. The new NIV has um, assume authority. The best translation I can come up with, I I went back and and read all the original words in their context and papyri and uh, different places because I wasn't sure I could trust, you know, everyone arguing back and forth. They're all biased, and I'm biased too, but I thought, let me go back. And and, and looking at the three, the best I could come up with was dominate or compel, as what this word may mean, although we're really not sure. Well, then the next related question is, how does authentane relate to teaching? Interpreters agree, based on the Greek structure of this sentence, that teaching and authentane are, are closely related to one another, but they disagree about how they're related. Some see teaching as one way of exercising authority. They point to chapters 3 and 5 where elders are to oversee the church and some of those are responsible for teaching. Some elders are are ruling elders, as they're sometimes called today, while others are teaching elders, typically pastors. And, And so this view concludes that Paul doesn't want women to be elders. And so they translate the verse, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That is, to be an elder. Others point out, though, that there's a couple weaknesses with that view. First is that Paul never says in Timothy that elders have authority. In fact, you won't find that anywhere in the whole New Testament. Can you believe that? It, it, it surprised me when I someone pointed it out. But, but I looked it up, and the only verse I found in the whole New Testament that even comes close is Hebrews 13, 17. In English, it reads, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. But I looked at it in Greek, and it just says submit to your leaders. That word authority isn't even in there in the Greek. The the interpreters, translators supply it because it's implied. 
But the point is that, that for Paul, elders are first and foremost servants. Like Christ, they're, they're to care for, they're to guard God's people. That's the language Paul uses. And so it's questionable whether Paul would use a word like authentine, a strong word like that, even to talk about how male elders should treat people. It's one thing to, to tell people they should submit to their leadership of their leaders. It's another thing to tell elders, you have authority, you have strong authority. And Paul just doesn't do that. The second weakness is that Paul's stress in our verse here, verse 12, is on the teaching, not on the authority. That's why Paul puts teaching first in the sentence. That's how you do it in Greek when you want to highlight something. You put it first. And so the emphasis is on teaching. And the rest of the sentence then tells who women should teach, namely, or who women should not teach, namely men, and how they shouldn't teach or why they shouldn't teach. Either they shouldn't teach men because it dominates them, or they shouldn't teach men in a way which dominates them. And at this point, it's really hard to tell which of these two Paul means. We just don't know. Now, that's technical, I realize, and I'm going through it quickly because of time. And so if you want to ask me more about it afterwards or about anything else, please do. But the bottom line is to me that it makes good sense to conclude that Paul must be responding here to some Ephesian women who have started teaching men. And it seems that they've been doing it quite aggressively, that they've been perhaps pushing their false teachings on these men or the false teachings they're learning from the false teachers. And Paul's saying, no, knock it off. You don't know what you're talking about. You're deceived. You need to humble yourselves and to learn good doctrine yourself. Now, Paul's just as hard on the men. In fact, he put a couple of them out of the church we saw last week. And Timothy's to command the others to stop teaching false teaching. But... As it relates to the women, is that all Paul has in mind here? Or, or would he apply this to all women everywhere? That's the big question. And that's where the next couple of verses come in. Because in verses 13 to 14, Paul gives us the reason for what he just said. And he doesn't say because of the problems in Ephesus, but rather he says because of creation. Now, for many who think this applies today, this is a slam dunk. But, but others aren't so sure. So let me briefly give you the three main views here on this. First, some say in verses 13 to 14, Paul is giving us a theology of the order that God instituted at creation. That man was created first, he's to lead. Women came next, she's to follow. Why? Well, among other reasons, because... Eve's deception in the garden shows that women are inherently more prone to being deceived. This view isn't popular anymore for a couple reasons. A, psychologists have studied this and they found that regardless of what our stereotypes are, women are on average not, in fact, more easily deceived than men on average. And B, Paul surely wouldn't think that women are inherently more deceived after all, who are the main false teachers messing up the church in Ephesus? They're men. And who helped to sort out Apollos' shaky theology? Priscilla, a woman. And 2 Timothy 1.5, who taught Timothy the true faith? His mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. If Paul thought women were more prone to deception, why would he allow them to teach other women, not to mention children? 
Well, given all this, a second view is a variation on the first. It, it agrees that since Adam came before Eve, that, that God has ordered creation to have men lead women. But not it counters because men are necessarily more better equipped to lead, as if the women are gullible or something, but rather simply because someone had to lead and God chose men. And in this view, Eve's deception doesn't suggest that women are more easily deceived. Rather, it, it warns us of what can happen when women are deceived into taking the lead instead of letting the men lead. In other words, when the order that God set up at creation is reversed, this view says, Paul is warning us, there can be big spiritual problems. That's why the women should follow, the men should lead. And, and this is a much stronger argument. In fact, it, it almost convinced me. But I see one fatal problem with it. And that is that it overlooks the rest of 1 Timothy and what's happening in the Ephesian church. After all, what's happening there? There already are big spiritual problems. There already is deception running rampant and it isn't because the women are in charge. No, it's the men who have begun leading the church into deception. All right, well, that leaves us with a third view to consider, which says that we shouldn't over-theologize verses 13 to 14. It says Paul isn't appealing to Adam and Eve to say anything profound about men and women in general. Rather, he's using the story of the Garden of Eden because it's relevant to correcting the problems that are happening with some of the women in Ephesus. Some women have been deceived by false teaching. They need to realize that that's as dangerous as when Eve was deceived by the serpent. It, it leads to sin. It leads to destruction. And the women certainly shouldn't try to teach this false teaching to men like Eve did when, he, when she persuaded Adam to eat the fruit, when she passed on the deception to Adam. No, Adam was formed first, not Eve. You ladies be quiet, Paul is saying. Let the men teach and lead. Not the false teaching men, of course. They're, they're the deceivers. But rather, Paul says, submit yourselves to those men like Timothy who are teaching good, wholesome doctrine so that you won't be destroyed like Eve was. Well, that leads us finally to verse 15, where Paul says, you women will be saved through childbearing if you continue in faith, love, and holiness. And of course, this is another hard verse to understand. But maybe Paul is just saying what he says to the younger widows later in chapter 5. I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, same word, childbearing, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. If the women in Ephesus are going to be saved from the false teaching which is affecting them, they're going to have to leave the false teachers, and they're going to have to get back to a normal, quiet, respectable life. All right, well, we're out of time. We're over time. <laughs> and I certainly haven't solved or covered everything, but I hoped what I could do in one sermon was to begin a conversation and I hope we can respectfully and caringly continue that in the days ahead as we wrestle through this very difficult text if you'd like to dig in more for yourself please talk to me there are some articles you can read on both sides I've done so much studying preparing for this I might even be persuaded to write an article myself 
Let's pray. God, this is one of those issues where it not only gets contentious, but it gets complicated. We have to look into the Greek. We have to do word studies back into ancient antiquity. And even the scholars with all their PhDs can't agree. And yet we want to be faithful to you. We want to hear from you. And I pray that you would help us with good consciences to continue to do that in the days ahead. Help us work out. We we deal with this, God, in today's culture as young women, as young men, as married couples trying to learn how to get along, how to treat one another. We deal with it as a church. Help us to do it in a way that brings honor to your son, Jesus. Amen.